And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in. It's Friday. We're talking about Minnesota politics this hour. You probably know that the governor's office is on the ballot in November, along with other top state offices. Also on the ballot are all 201 seats in the Minnesota legislature, 67 in the Senate and 134 in the House. Right now, Democrats have a slim majority in the House of Representatives and Republicans have a slim majority in the Senate. Voters will decide whether Minnesota's government remains divided or whether one party will control the governor's office and the legislature. We're going to talk about the campaign for control of the legislature, specifically about control of the House. And joining me now is the person who will likely be the Speaker of the House next year if Republicans take over. Kurt Dowd is the Republican Minority Leader right now, and he joins me in the studio. Representative Dowd, thanks for coming in. Well, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Just to give folks a sense of how close this really is, how many seats would Republicans have to flip and take control of to take over control of the House? Four seats. Four seats. Four seats. Yeah, and just to give you an idea of how close that is, in the last election, we needed nine seats to take the majority, and and it wasn't considered to be a very good election for Republicans uh, nationwide, but we actually picked up five seats here in Minnesota, and the next four seats that we needed to get the majority, we fell uh, a cumulative vote total of 680 votes short of taking the majority. So it was just a razor-thin margin two years ago, and we're uh, very optimistic about our, our chances this time. Well, I was going to ask you that because back during the session, I talked to a few of your members, and they said they were, in fact, very optimistic. Yeah. They thought things were looking really good for Republicans to take over. Are you still feeling that way? Is there any any uh, question that's creeping in? You know, no, we are. We're very optimistic about that. Uh, you know, we think we're seeing, uh, you know, in the suburbs, uh, folks uh, concerned about the crime and, you know, up on the Iron Range, I think there's kind of a realignment up there uh, politically and, and that that favors us. Uh, so we feel incredibly optimistic. Now, I, I will say, you know, four months ago or three months ago when the generic congressional ballot was as high as plus 13 Republican, it had never been that high before. Mm. I don't think anybody expected the environment was going to stay that good for us. But uh, we still feel right now like the environment favors us by about five or six points. And um, if that's the case, and and with Biden's approval rating in the low 40s, uh, you know, history tells us that that we are likely to pick up a, a sizable number of seats this term. All right. Well, if all your plans and your hopes and your dreams come true, <laughs> let's say Republicans control the House, the Senate and the governor's office yep. next year. Uh, what are you going to do with that big budget surplus? I think there's still $7 billion or more sitting there waiting to be spent, given back, tax cuts. What are you going to do? Right. I think there... I think at the end of last session, there was a little over $7 billion left uh, unspent after we uh, did some of the things that we had to do uh, during the last session. But... Um, you know, we've been seeing revenues still come in above forecast consistently since then. Um, and I think folks are thinking we may have somewhere between a 10 and a $12 billion surplus by the time we start next session. Um, now there's a little uneasiness about whether we'll have some economic downturn. We're obviously in a recession right now, and um, that will eventually affect our revenues at the state. Uh, unfortunately, our revenues are very volatile uh, to economic changes. In fact, they're almost amplified um, 
and we end up with either huge surpluses or huge deficits. So I think we need to be a little bit cautious, but uh, the best thing that we can do in a time of recession is to put money back in, especially at a time when we have a huge surplus, is to put money back in Minnesotans' pockets. And I think we need to make our tax code more fair for Minnesotans. Uh, for instance, I could see House File Number 1 uh, being the the bill to exempt Social Security taxes from state income tax, uh, You know, things like that that are going to really help Minnesotans and, and make us more competitive. We don't want to pay seniors to retire in states like Florida or, or wherever that where they don't have a, an income tax. I think uh, the tax deal that was on the table last time was about a, a billion and a half one year and a little more than that the next year. So more than $3 billion tax cut, right? I, I think that's right. So what? Uh, how much of that, say there's $10 billion on the bottom line when you come back, how much of that would go for a tax cut? You know, I don't know. I think we're waiting. We'll still have two economic forecasts uh, from the state before we make those decisions. We'll have a, a, a a November forecast and then a February forecast next spring um, that will give us a, a little more clarity on on what resources we'll actually have and and I think that'll help us. Uh, hopefully, we'll know by that time um, how severe this recession is and and whether it's going to be a long term one or whether it's going to be just kind of a short blip. Um, and I think that'll impact the decisions that we're making. But I think we want to. You know, I, I've never been a believer that. Uh, that that we should just make a decision based on how much resources we have available. I think we need to look at what services we provide, um, make sure that we're providing those in the most effective and efficient way possible. Um, and and you know we we need to make sure we are the stewards of the tax dollars, so we need to make sure that we're using that money efficiently. Um, and and you know we can't see the sort of growth in in some government programs where we've seen you know twenty percent increases biennium over biennium in in you know particular health and human services areas uh, like we've seen in the past. That's unsustainable. So we need to reform those programs and um, get that sort of spending under control. Uh, But also at the same time, when we're looking at being more efficient, I think we can, we can, also streamline our programs to make sure that they're actually effective and more effective at providing the services that I think we know Minnesotans need. So uh, we're talking with Kurt Dowd. He's the Republican leader in the Minnesota House. Uh, possibly the next Speaker of the House if Republicans can flip four seats in the coming election. Um, What about education? Because, you know, the Republican candidate for Governor Scott Jensen put out a plan a couple of weeks ago uh, calling for vouchers, Mm -hmm. um, public money going to different kinds of schools, private schools, to give parents more choice about where to send their kids. Would that be something that Republicans, if the Republicans had the majority, at the Capitol that they would push for and pass. You know, I we, we don't talk about voucher type programs, but we do believe that that parents need some choice, uh, and and it should be a need driven thing. And what I mean by that isn't a financial need driven, um, but by a, a situational need. Um, if you are a minority student in the Minneapolis school district right now, you have less than a fifty percent chance of graduating from high school. So if we can't get that number. Uh, in an acceptable range where we're giving these kids the tools they need to be successful throughout their life, um, then we need to give them some other options. Uh, and there are schools, there are charter schools or private schools uh, that are taking uh, cross sections of those same kids that are not only getting 100% graduation rates, but are getting 90 and 100% college placement rates. Um, schools like the Northside Achievement Zone, which takes kids right out of that's the you know the same North Minneapolis schools where uh, their colleagues are are getting. 
uh, or, you know, their counterparts are getting a less than a 50% chance of graduating. So um, we really need to focus on the outcomes and make sure that we're giving these kids the chances they need to be successful. You know, I, I started with sort of the hypothetical scenario that, that you're in control. What if your dreams don't come true yeah. and, and government is still divided, uh, you know, w- whatever combination you want to pick, but, but you can't just have your own way. Sure. Um, what happens to that surplus then? Do you go back to the drawing board? Do you, do you take the deals you had last year and work off those or what I, happens? You know, I, I, thank you for asking that question. I have, and I, I come from a u- unique position that maybe nobody else in the history of the state has where I have been leader of my caucus now for 10 years. I was minority leader first, then I was speaker of the house for two terms and now two terms again as minority leader. So having those unique perspectives, what I have figured out is that state government right now is not working very well. The legislative process is not working very well. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is that we start the session by introducing bills and 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 those are solutions um, so we start with solutions instead of actually starting with the problem and then we work those solutions through and, and you end up with two different competing solutions and all we do is you know in this uh, not hard to imagine in this polarized environment we just uh, you know shoot holes in, in our opponents uh, solutions instead of actually setting those aside putting the problem on the table in front of us, looking at all of the data possible. How did these kids get in this situation? You know, what are the characteristics? What are other states doing that's creative, that's working? Um, and 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 really, we have to set aside what some of the special interest groups uh, would want because they don't always uh, have the best interest of the kids at heart. And, and frankly, I think, you know, those of us that have an election certificate owe that to these kids. Is there any chance if... Uh things don't change that much in the election, mm-hmm. that there would be a special session to um, do do some of that business that didn't get done this year when time ran out on the regular session. You know, I was a was critical of the agreement at the end of session. Uh, when I was told about the agreement, um, you know, you, you noted earlier that we had a $7 billion surplus left after we did some of that mm-hmm. refunding the unemployment trust fund and some of that stuff that we had to do, right? So that left us with about 7 point one or something. Um, but the deal they made at the end of session was for $12 billion, right? So they weren't just spending the money in the current biennium. They were allocating all of the money in the next biennium as well. And the idea was that it was $4 billion in, in uh, tax relief, $4 billion in spending, and $4 billion left in the bottom line. Well, if there was an economic downturn and a recession, the $4 billion in the bottom line was going to evaporate. Even the economic uh, uh, forecasters were saying that. Um, and of the spending and the tax bill, the tax bill was actually about 60% tax relief and about 40% spending. So you you would have ended up with about five or so billion dollars of spending. And a lot of that would have been permanent ongoing spending. Uh, it was not a good fiscally responsible agreement. And I think the, the world looks different now. So I, I don't think there's any chance that somehow gets resurrected. Mm. I do see a possibility where we could have a special session for a bonding bill. Mm. That was one of the things that kind of got left aside and Democrats did not make that a priority this session in the House. Um, We didn't even see a bill in the House. Uh, But I have been very open that our caucus is open to a bonding bill as long as it invests in the right sort of infrastructure projects that I think we all think are important to the state. 
So uh, just a few minutes left here. What issues are you going to be stressing as your candidates are out knocking on doors trying to convince people to vote for them? You know, we're talking, uh, obviously, about crime. Uh, that's what we're hearing from people. That's the number one issue on people's minds. It's in all of our polling. It's the number one thing. And and obviously, Democrats have a very uh, failed record on crime, uh, you know, from not supporting and investing in law enforcement to uh, the fact that, you know, Governor Walls uh, has appointed, you know, judges that were appointed by Governor Governor Walls uh, have given probation 53% of the time when the state law calls for prison time. Um, so we're not holding criminals accountable. Uh, and, and, and frankly, people aren't feeling safe. I mean, two days ago, there was a 61-year-old woman who was violently carjacked and kidnapped in Arden Hills, Minnesota at 7.30 in the morning. Um, you know, and under Governor Wall's leadership, uh, murders are up 71% in the state and, and violent assaults are up 62%. That is absolutely unacceptable. Um, and it, it, voters are having a visceral reaction to that. Uh, every day that there's a murder or a, an assault on the news, um, folks are, are, are more scared to, to go out and, and, you know, visit uh, places like Minneapolis. But the crime's spilling out. I mean, this one happened in Arden Hills, and, well, and it's in, shocking. And in fairness, it's happening all over the country. Crime is up all over the country. Well, it, 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 I would say crime is up in Democrat-controlled cities all over the country. Well, and, and that's a statistic that, I, that plays out. We can check those statistics later. <laughs> but I, I do want to uh, say, since you've talked about crime, taxes, education, yep. uh, you know, a lot of Democrats talking about abortion after uh, the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe yeah. versus Wade. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Roe versus Wade did not impact one single Minnesotan. We have a constitutional protection for abortion in this state, and the next legislature— and the next governor cannot do anything to change that. In fact, even Keith Ellison said, uh, and he's quoted as saying, in Minnesota, you have a right to choose, and that is protected, and it's not going to change. So Democrats know that, but right now, Democrats are lying to Minnesotans about that. Nobody, the legislature and the, and the governor cannot change that, and that's a fact. The uh, a judge in Ramsey County, though, got rid of a lot of restrictions that were on abortion that had passed over the years by the legislature and signed by governors. Would you try to get some of those restrictions back or try to reinstate some other restrictions on abortion? Well, right now there there is a constitutional protection and that case that you brought mm -hmm. up is a great example of that, uh, you know, referring back to the Dovey Gomez case from the 1990s. Um, and and the judges and the the courts now have found uh, a pretty broad protection for abortion rights in the state of Minnesota. Um, so while this is a very personally held close decision for a lot of people and and um, people care deeply for it on both sides, uh, it's disingenuous for Democrats right now to lie to people and and bring up this divisive issue just in an attempt to distract them from uh, the surging crime rates and the inflation and the gas prices that are out of control under Democrat leadership. Almost out of time. Any predictions? How many seats will Republicans pick up? You know, historically, the average number of seats to flip away from an incumbent president's party in the president's first midterm in the Minnesota House is 17. I think we're north of 12 seats that flip. All right. We'll see what happens <laughs> on election night. Uh, that's Republican State Representative Kurt Doubt. He's the uh, Republican minority leader in the House. He'll be the speaker if Republicans do, in fact, flip any more than four seats. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time.
And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We are talking about the campaign for control of the legislature, specifically about control of the Minnesota House of Representatives. Democrats have had the majority for the past few years in the House, but if Republicans can flip just four seats in November, they will be in control next year. Joining me now is someone who is working to try to make sure that doesn't happen and to make sure that Democrats stay in charge. It's the Speaker of the House, DFL Representative Melissa Hortman. Madam Speaker, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, People know that uh, a lot of these districts are pretty safe and they're going to probably send back a Republican or a Democrat to the Capitol. How many seats do you think are really competitive this year? I would say there's probably about 34 in the middle. Let's say there's probably 50 very safe Democratic seats and about 50 very safe Republican seats and about 34 that could go either way. And what do you think? Uh, Can you hold on to enough seats to stay in charge next time? I do believe that we will hold enough seats to stay in charge. You know, typically in a midterm year, the president's party doesn't do so well. And so in a typical midterm, you would expect that Democrats would lose the Minnesota House of Representatives. But this is not a typical midterm for two reasons. One is the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, 50 years of precedent. That is a political earthquake. We've seen in election results in Kansas and Alaska and other special elections. That's having a huge impact. The other issue is we had redistricting in 2022. And the Minnesota Supreme Court drew a map where Democrats have 77 seats that they can win. We need 68 to have a majority. So we believe we have some that we can spare and still hold a majority. So uh, where are you going to be fighting the hardest? Where are these seats that are mostly competitive? Well, it's no secret that in uh, U.S. politics and, in fact, global politics, we've seen a shift over time to rural areas becoming more and more Republican and suburban areas becoming more and more Democratic. So there are still a few suburbs where Republicans uh, eked out narrow victories in recent years. We believe that we will take more suburban districts in this cycle. We also believe that the Republicans will go after our members in the rural seats, and we will be working hard to defend our members in rural seats because they fit their districts and they really represent their constituents well. Well, as you know better than anybody, there was a big budget surplus uh, available in the last session. Uh, Some of it got spent, but not all of it, not most of it. And uh, I don't know if you heard uh, Kurt Dowd. He just said that he thinks that surplus might grow to 10 or $12 billion by next year. Um, if the Democrats are still in charge, what would you do with that money? We know that Minnesotans really value investment in education, and they really value a strong public education system. We know that Minnesotans really care about strong Uh, state funding for their local schools so they don't have to rely on levy and referenda. But we also know that Minnesotans want other educational opportunities like early childhood educational opportunities and more affordable college. It is really great that President Biden has forgiven some student debt, but we know that college is still too expensive for many Minnesotans. And so investing in our public school infrastructure from preschool to college would be a very high priority for Democrats. And uh, Republicans, uh, the Republican candidate for governor is making the case for uh, school vouchers. He wants to send uh, public dollars to private schools if the students aren't doing well. Um, What's the DFL plan for students 
in schools, you know, the the achievement gap to, to solve that because it has been persistent uh, for years and years. Well, we know Minnesota used to be one of the nation leaders in terms of achievement across the board. Uh, for many decades, we were number one or number two. We would trade that title with uh, the state of Massachusetts. However, since um, the late 1980s, we have slipped in our investment in education. And as we've slipped in our investment, we have also slipped in our achievement. We have tried all sorts of uh, things. Republicans have put forward some ideas like uh, funding private schools, which Minnesotans oppose. But what we haven't tried in recent years is actually funding our school systems at the levels that they should be funded at. So that would be a priority for for Minnesota Democrats. And we will have the resources to do that. And when you say the level at which they should be funded, what? how much is that? We know that in many uh, school districts across the state, they are passing levy and referenda to supplement their their spending. And many areas aren't able to do that. They have uh, economic changes that they're facing. So what we need is stronger state support so the communities don't have to rely on the local property taxpayer. Uh, you probably know this already. The Republicans are blaming Democrats for higher crime. They're blaming uh, Governor Walls for higher crime. How do your candidates respond to that as they're out campaigning, knocking on people's doors? Our candidates uh, have really strong relationships in their local communities with their local city councils and county boards, their sheriffs and their police chiefs. And we believe that it's important when we're talking about public safety to be providing resources for law enforcement, but also to be providing resources so that um, we have opportunities for youth in terms of housing and employment and after school opportunities. You know, Republicans in the Minnesota legislature this year had an opportunity to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into public safety, but they're so interested in playing partisan politics this year, they actually voted against uh, the very first bill of the 21 session would have given $30 million to law enforcement. Every single House Republican voted against it, including Kurt Doubt. And then we also had a bill to provide $350 million in investments in public safety, community partnerships, and law enforcement. And every single House Republican voted against that bill as well. So I think what would be helpful would be if Republicans would put the interests of Minnesotans ahead of partisan politics. Uh High inflation, cost of living, gas prices, they've come down a bit, but still pretty high. Um, people are concerned about that. Uh, what are Democrats saying about that? Well, Minnesotans can count on Democrats to be on their side. They know when it comes to disputes between employers and employees, and uh, employees are looking for a fair shake and the kind of flexibility they need to go to the doctor's office, like we saw with uh, President Biden interceding to end that uh, potential railway strike, or whether it is uh, Democrats uh, ensuring that corporations don't take excessive profits, whether that's in the area of insulin or opiates or oil company executives, Democrats are on the side of the working people in Minnesota. And so when it comes to an economy that works for everyone, Democrats have the record of standing up for middle-class Minnesotans. Uh, you said at the start that in a typical midterm year, the um, party that controls the White House doesn't do well in these elections. How much of a drag is uh, President Biden on Democrats as they try to win these House seats this year? Well, I have to say that uh, President Biden is really on a roll. 
starting in July, there's a number of successes he can point to. Um, first of all, his administration has done work to lower the price of a gallon of gas, and it's been going down, I think, for some 90 days. So that uh, has been very successful. He's also had major legislative victories, uh, most significantly the computer manufacturing um, bill where we're talking about bringing um, computer chip manufacturing back to the shores of the United States of America. And then most recently, this Inflation Reduction Act. That's a very far-sighted uh, climate uh, crisis addressing bill. Really um, a, a, a remarkable legislative achievement. And this is on top of the American Rescue Plan and other work that President Biden did, the inflation or um, Infrastructure Investment Bill which was a bipartisan victory in 2021. I think that Joe Biden's uh, success in recent weeks has been certainly very positive. But like I said earlier, the biggest factors this year that favor Democrats are redistricting and Mm. the increase in suburban districts. And Minnesotans are pro-choice, and they believe that abortion is health care and that it should be available. And they know that Republicans are extreme on this issue and do not support their rights. Talking with Melissa Hortman, she's a, the DFL Speaker of the Minnesota House, hoping that uh, DFLers win enough seats in November to keep that position. Um, on the abortion issue, uh, you, I think, told me a couple months ago that the current DFL majority or the current majority in the legislature is not a pro-choice majority. Um, so after this election, do you think it will be? We are a pro-choice Minnesota House DFL. We right. have a pro-choice speaker, and all of the legislation that we have passed is pro-choice. We don't have 68 pro-choice votes in the Minnesota House of Representatives, but I do expect that after this election that we will. The most important vote that a member takes is the vote for speaker, because the speaker decides who's on the committees, which committees there are, and which legislation goes on the House floor. With Governor Walls in power and with me as Speaker, Minnesotans have been able to rest assured that we will protect their right to access abortion as health care and that we will prevent any efforts by Republicans to take those rights away from them. Uh, Ramsey County judge threw out some restrictions on abortion that had been passed over the years. Are, are those Were those restrictions unreasonable as far as you're concerned? W- would you fight any attempt to try somehow to bring those restrictions back? Absolutely. That's what it means to have a pro-choice speaker and a pro-choice uh, Minnesota House of Representatives, that Republicans' attempts to interfere with Minnesotans' right to privacy will be blocked at every turn. We know that Minnesotans uh, want to have the right to seek abortion as health care when the circumstances Uh, dictate that that is an option uh, that they would like to consider. And Republicans are so extreme on this issue. I mean, you've heard Scott Jensen being all over the board, but what you've heard more than anything is a man who's saying that even in cases of rape and incest, that women would not be allowed to access abortion. And that is just completely out of step with Minnesotans in 2022. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that... uh, after the election, Minnesota's government is still divided. What happens uh, with negotiations over the surplus? Do you start where, where you ended up earlier this year, or does everything start over again and it's going to take until May to figure out what to do with that money? 
Well, I've been the speaker for four years, and I've had the good fortune to, in three of those four years, have a very good and cordial relationship with the Senate Republican leader, who was then Paul Gazelka. This last year, the new leader, Senator uh, Jeremy Miller, opted to take all of the budget issues to a partisan fight in the election instead of uh, fulfill his obligations under the deal uh, to the governor and I and for the people of Minnesota. So I think in 2022, Senate Republicans chose to fight rather than to resolve issues at the state capitol. But I am confident that with the 2022 election in the rearview mirror, we could return to the status that we had before, where if we continue to have divided government, that I would have good relationships with Senate Republicans and we could resolve those matters. What do you think the chances are? What what do you think is going to happen in this election? Well, I think that overturning Roe versus Wade is a really a political earthquake. When you look at the state of Kansas and the polling would have indicated that the pro-choice side of that argument was going to win by just a couple points and instead they won by 20 points. When you look at the state of Alaska that elected a Democratic congressperson and defeated Sarah Palin, the special election results in CD1 in Minnesota, what we're seeing is this election cycle is not behaving like a traditional midterm, and that political earthquake of overturning Roe versus Wade will have an election consequence, and it will be favorable to Democrats. Do you think Democrats will end up controlling the governor's office, the House, and the Senate? I think that there is a possibility that we will have all three. We will certainly work to have conversations with Minnesotans across the state because I think it's in the best interest of Minnesota to have a DFL majority in the legislature and a DFL governor. We know that Minnesotans deserve strong public education system, affordable health care, an economy that works for everyone, and we know that Democrats would deliver that for them. DFL House Speaker Melissa Hortman, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Joining me is someone who has been a member of the House since 2001, but decided not to run for re-election this year. Paul Marquardt is a Democrat. He's the chair of the House Taxes Committee. He's a high school social studies teacher and the former mayor of Dilworth. And he's a bit of an endangered species. He's a Democrat who represents a largely rural district, 4B in northwestern Minnesota. It's the area right around Moorhead that includes Detroit Lakes, Hawley, and I think all the way down to Barnesville. Paul Marquardt, thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Nice to be with you. So what went into your decision not to run for an 11th term in the House? It was time. You know, counting my years as the Dilworth mayor and now in the legislature, it's been 35 years in elective service and uh, time to spend a lot more time with the fun grandchildren and, you know, looking to do new things. It just was time. But I go out in good terms. I I feel good about it. Well, your district uh, has always, I mean, it's always been a pretty Republican area, right, in presidential races. But you managed to get elected time after time as a Democrat. How did you do it? A lot of door knocking. I think people are willing to kind of cut through the partisanship if they know you, they see you, they understand you, and they understand that uh, you know what they represent and what they want. And that's what I tried to do always. And I think uh, when we got into, you know, for example, President Trump won by 19 points last time, uh, people would look down lower at the ticket there and say, you know what, I know Paul, he's been at my door a number of times, I'm going to vote for him. So it's just, it's getting out there, retail politics, that's just what you have to do. 
Well, and of course, Colin Peterson used to represent the congressional district, too. He was like the rare Democrat in a in a overwhelmingly Republican area. Do you think things have changed so much that uh, another Democrat couldn't win in your area? No, I think you can. I, you know, the important thing is to vote the district. And I think in the legislature, we're getting away from that. Uh, people tend to just vote the party line. And, and if folks can see that you're voting uh, with the district, I think that's going to be very helpful for candidates. So, no, I, I think uh, Democrats can still win in this area. And it's focusing on those bread and butter issues. And also what's happened, and I think even in rural Minnesota, is that the Republican Party has overreached. And I think folks are seeing that on, you know, that, you know the anti-vaccinations and the, the not accepting elections and, you know, even other things dealing with some of the issues, even abortion, I think uh, they might have overstepped. So I, I think you can win in, in rural Minnesota, but it has to be getting out there door to door, meeting with folks every day. I want to go back to something you said about uh, the legislators voting more with their party than with their district. Uh, What has changed over the years about politics that has caused that, do you think? I think part of it, and you see it in the primaries, where, and on the national level and now on the state level, where if you compromise, if you work with the other party, uh, someone either from the right or the left is going to try to primary you out. And you, know, you look at Eric Cantor. Here was the House Majority Leader back a few years ago who got beat in a primary, and that sends a very strong signal that, hey, you better not compromise. And I think that's really bad because the best legislation occurs when you have the compromise and you bring everyone together. Hmm. And it seems like it's only gotten worse since then, doesn't it? It seems like it's getting more partisan. And you even look at some of the election results uh, on the national level and some of the studies are, that are done is split-ticket voting uh, you know, peaked about 20 years ago, and the percent of voters now that split their ticket is lower than it was. It's going down. So it shows the partisanship. Yeah, so it's not just the politicians necessarily who are afraid about getting a primary challenge, but it's it's actually the voters as well. Right? Well, absolutely, because you have in these primaries a lot of times the voters punishing a person from their party who is compromising. So, yes, it's not just, you know, us politicians, we might not be very bright, but we're not stupid. And so, <laughs> you know, we're going to listen to our constituents. Of it. And, in fact, if that's what they're really demanding, Uh, then, you know, you end up going that way. I mean, I was fortunate in my district, while it certainly leans Republican, uh, it is a lot of moderates and people want just common sense uh, issues to be dealt with. And so, uh, you know, I didn't have those type of fights in the partisan primary, so to speak, Mm -hmm. made it a little easier. Mm -hmm. Well, and obviously, I mean, the Capitol is a a very political place, right? I mean, by design, one party's going to have a majority of votes and the other party's going to be in the minority. But on a day-to-day basis, as as you're trying to pass legislation and working with folks, you know, from both sides of the aisle, 
how how much of a difference does this partisan stuff really make? Is it is it, is it as divided at the Capitol as it looks like from the outside? You know, that's a great question. I, you know, in 2019 and 2020 and 2021, we in Minnesota showed that a divided government, we're the only divided government at the time, could really make some good headway and really do some good things for Minnesotans. And that was Democrats and Republicans coming together. I saw that fall apart this year when we were negotiating. I thought Governor Walls and Speaker Hortman and the Senate had come to a good agreement, you know, $4 billion in cuts, $4 billion in spending, $4 billion on the bottom line. And we were so close. And, you know, Governor Walls wants a special session. Speaker Hortman, the House Democrats want a special session. And yet we couldn't get that done. I'll let your listeners uh, figure that out. And that, to me, uh, I hadn't seen that happen before. We were so close to an agreement, and yet uh, one side didn't want to kind of finish it up. We got to the five-yard line, and they headed to the locker room, didn't want to try to go across the goal line. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's indicative of some of the increased partisanship and politics that we're seeing that wasn't uh, even there a few years ago. And, of course, it was your bill, that tax bill. I think, uh, (laughs) if I remember correctly, you called it a historic bill, uh, one of the— one of the biggest uh, ever uh, tax cuts. Um, do you regret that that you're going out without getting that passed? Well, I think we set the good groundwork. I mean, it was really a, a good bill, and I'm hoping at some time uh, a bill close to that can get done. There was a lot of significant tax relief for the middle class, a lot of property tax cuts, which uh, I think is going to be a big issue this fall. It would have really helped uh, people around this state, no matter who you were and where you lived, it would have helped folks. So, yeah, but I think it's going to get done. Would I like to see it get done? Yes. But I think in the long term, ultimately, a lot of those things in that bill will get completed. But but not in your time, because it doesn't seem like there's going to be a special session. Doesn't look like it. I still would love to see a special session, hope we have one. I think the chances, though, are fairly slim. What do you want people to know as you're leaving after uh, these many years in the state house? What, what did you make of the whole experience? It was the greatest honor I've ever had, and just the fact that folks would have faith in you to allow them to represent you uh, was really special. And just you know, hopefully, people realized I I had their interest in mind and tried to do the best that I could to promote things for rural Minnesota and the state of Minnesota. But it was a true honor, true privilege to serve. And a lot of time on your hands now. You won't have to be coming down to St. Paul for half a year. (laughs) That's right. Well, I'm still, I'm I'm teaching at least this one more year. And uh, yes, um, getting more time to spend with the family and the grandkids. Well, Representative Paul Marquardt, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you much for having me. You bet. Paul Marquardt is a DFL state representative. He chaired the House Taxes Committee. He is not running for another term in the Minnesota legislature. 
Programming supported by Think Small Minnesota. Assisting communities by targeting resources to early childhood to benefit children most vulnerable. And providing recommended proven solutions to ease Minnesota's child care shortage and worst-in-the-nation achievement gaps at thinksmall.org. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. To finish up our program today, I'm joined by our political reporter, Brian Baxt. Brian, thanks for coming in. Hi, Mike. Uh, This question of control of the Minnesota Capitol next year is really a key one that voters will have to decide this year. It seemed like Republicans were very confident earlier in the year that they would hold on to the Senate and flip the House. What are you hearing as you talk to folks now? This is one of the more confounding political environments I think we've seen, you know, given that we're in a midterm, which typically would be bad for the incumbent party, the Democratic Party, because they hold the White House. And then you've got this this once-in-a-generation ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court coming in and energizing a Democratic base that had kind of fallen off and and Republicans had been feeling very confident. They're still confident, but as you heard from Kurt Doubt, he even acknowledges that the environment has changed a little bit from where they were at before. Uh, Democrats feel like they have a fighting chance at least to hold or maybe even flip one of the chambers, uh, the Senate. Hmm. Uh, Republicans feel like they're going to hold and maybe flip one of the chambers. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to be wrong. We just don't know which. (laughs) Right, right. And uh, the other uh, factor here is so many open seats. Uh, A lot of uh, legislators like Paul Marquardt uh, retiring and, of course, redistricting as well. So the legislature is going to look very different no matter who's in charge. Absolutely. And and if you just look at where the redistricting happened, a lot of the seats pushed closer to the Twin Cities, around in those suburbs and exurbs and in places like Rochester that have been growing and are pulling away from the rural areas where Republicans had been really planting their flag over the years. So that's another dynamic that is is difficult to assess. And people, you know, the handicappers like to look at, well, what happened in the last election in these districts? Well, uh, Joe Biden did quite well in a lot of these districts, but some of that was a vote against Donald Trump as Mm -hmm. much as it was a vote for Joe Biden. So it's hard to really assess what the political complexion of some of these districts are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, with the governor's office on the ballot, it really does raise the possibility that one party could control the governor's office, the House and the Senate. That's right. Again, we don't know which party, but that would be fairly rare, right? That's right. That's only happened one one two-year period over the last three-plus decades. I mean, in 2012, when Democrats took both the House and the Senate to pair with a governor's seat that they already had, that gave them this rare opportunity to pass their agenda largely unhindered. I mean, obviously, there are different types of Democrats, so things didn't always move as smoothly as you might expect. But Republicans have never had that trifecta. And coming into this election year, that was a tantalizing prospect for them. Obviously, some of the the, the polling in the governor's race has has suggested it might be an uphill uh, battle for Republicans to win the governor's office. But keep this in mind. If people start to feel like the governor's race gets out of reach, what's that going to do? A lot of people who want to check or to keep this divided government they're going to be putting their money toward perhaps Republican legislative candidates and Republican legislative caucuses. So there's that tug and pull that we might see because Minnesota just is used to having divided government. Mm -hmm. And we should, uh, as long as you mention polls, we should uh, point out that there will be another poll coming out this weekend Hmm. from NPR News, the Star Tribune, and CARE 11, the Minnesota poll. And uh, asking about the governor's race, some of those other state races. So we'll see what that has to say. That's right. We'll see what people are feeling of their top issues and a feeling about some of these other races that are important, the attorney general's race and the secretary of state's race. 
Um, just back to the legislature for a minute. Uh, you, you talked about the redistricting and sort of the suburban seats. Is that where you're looking at most of the competitive districts in the suburbs? Sure. There are some districts out in greater Minnesota that have, have still been in play. But by and large, the playing field is right around those second ring suburbs. You know, you push out a little bit from the Twin Cities because in Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Democrats have are fairly comfortable in those seats. And, and a lot of the first ring suburbs, they've got margins where they're not really feeling like they're being tested. It's some of these places like the Woodburys, the Burnsvilles, the Lakevilles, the uh, Apple Valleys. That's where these these races are, are really going to be decisive. And that's where, you know, this abortion ruling has really mixed the pot a little bit. Hmm. I mean, it, uh, Republicans wanted to talk about crime and inflation and they're being forced in some cases to talk about abortion. And, and there are some uh, push, there's some pushback among some of these independent voters on how far that abortion ruling went. It's unclear which is going to be the prevailing issue that they decide to vote on. And, and what happens, I mean, there's still seven, eight weeks left. That's a lifetime. Who knows if there's going to be another scrambling of the pot? Hmm. And uh, we should just mention again sort of what the stakes are here. I mean, there's that big budget surplus still mm-hmm. sitting there, largely untouched. Um, and they're going to have to make big decisions, tax cuts, school spending, you name it, on what to do with that money. That's right. And they have very different ideas about which direction to go in all of those areas. And as you've been talking about with some of your earlier guests, it doesn't look like any of that's going to be decided prior to the next legislative session. In fact, today, Governor Tim Walz said a special session was looking increasingly unlikely. He had been the one who had been this optimist that mm-hmm. maybe after the primary, we'll get back together. Well, that didn't happen. Maybe, you know, as we push more into October and and things seem to settle a bit, maybe we'll have a special session. Now he's saying it certainly doesn't look uh, very promising. Well, I wonder what would happen, though, if – I mean, what if we go through this election and it's – the same governor, the same control of the Senate, the same control of the House. I mean, that's a possibility, too. I mean, it seems like the House would be the one that might switch. But, I mean, then what do they do? Sure. But what was dif- what will be different next year that, than this year is next year they have a deadline they can't push. By June 30th, if they don't have a new budget, the government shuts down, and that looks bad for all of them. This past year, they had a budget that was – in place. In place. And mm-hmm. they, they were just going to change some things, add some things, subtract some things. And it was it wouldn't have affected the function of government. Next year, if they don't get a new budget in place by June and, and probably by early June, things will get a bit dicier. Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, just from the outside, and I'm, I'm sort of on the outside, a little more than you, uh, the campaign issues, economy and crime versus abortion. It seems to be shaking out that way. In fact, I was watching a uh, uh, television program at home, and I live out in the eastern suburbs, and I saw back-to-back ads against Republican candidates on the abortion issue. And it was surprising to me, legislative candidates. And so, so it's wow. already trickling down that far down the ballot. We're getting mail. We live in a swing area, so we're getting mail from both sides. And the messaging just seems to be, you know, crossing in the night. They're they're not talking about the same things. And if they, they are, they're talking about them in completely different ways. Hmm. Uh, okay, we talked about legislature. The mm-hmm. campaign for governor seems like it's been kind of quiet this week. Sure. We're, we're in that phase where the candidates are 
trying to restock their their campaign accounts to some in some respects they're coming off the state fair where they had to spend a lot of time doing retail politicking uh, there's some rallies here and there but for the most part we're waiting for the debate season to begin where there's going to be some debates in October, including one that NPR News will host on October 28th in the governor's race. There might be one, another televised one the week before that still being sorted out. But for the most part, this is going to be fought over the airwaves now. And Democrats are are dramatically outspending Republicans on TV ads in the governor's race. And it's it's taking a bit of a toll. You saw Scott Jensen have to use his first TV ad to kind of defend himself against what he was being said by the other side. And so that was interesting to me. It, it suggested that the abortion issue in that race is a key factor. Uh, expect anything big next week? Next week. Well, our poll. Yeah. And then also on Thursday, early voting starts. So if you've already made up your mind, you just want to get it over with, you'll have the chance to cast that ballot. Minnesota has one of the longer early voting windows in the country and so you can get out there and vote whenever you want between then and the election. Thursday, that starts. Thursday. Brian Baxt, thanks as always for coming on. You're welcome. Brian Baxt is NPR's political reporter. That'll just about do it for our program today. Our producers were Twyla Dang and Jeff Jones. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. And again, watch nprnews.org for that poll this weekend. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.